0: freedom that comes with trusting God. Am I willing to live for my faith? Who am I living for? You've got the story, but it's incomplete because you missed Jesus. Jesus completes your story. chapter 6. If you want to turn there in your Bible, on your phone, if you want to look at the screen, if you just want to listen. We're going to talk about these concentric circles of the gospel today. It started, Acts 1, 8 says, Jesus says, you will be my witnesses, and that word witness will come into play because the meaning of it means more than just words. You will be my witnesses starting in Jerusalem. You've heard this a few times now. And then in Judea and, help me, Samaria. Samaria, good. And then to the ends of the earth. That's, that's Jesus' words. Those are Jesus' words in Acts 1.8. And we start to see it coming true. We start to see it taking root in the book of Acts as we work through it. And so we've been in Jerusalem. And last week, we started in the first seven verses of Acts chapter 6 that talked about what was going on in Jerusalem. And in Jerusalem, that's where the church was at this point. They hadn't started spreading out yet. And in Jerusalem, the church was made up almost exclusively of Jews. And you had two different kinds of Jews in Jerusalem. Jerusalem. You had Hellenistic Jews and you had Hebraic Jews. And Hebraic Jews were like the pure form of Judaism. They spoke Hebrew in their temple, in their synagogue. They were uh, natives to Jerusalem. And so they thought themselves as the purest form of Judaism. But you also had the... Hellenistic Jews, the Greek-speaking Jews, and they were the Jews of the diaspora, the Jews of the scattering. Due to uh, exile, if you read your Old Testament, or due to Roman occupation, the Jews have been scattered all over the known world. There were like a million Jews living in Alexandria, Egypt at this time. And so they would come back to Jerusalem for a feast, or they would come back to retire, because there was something really precious about Jerusalem. And they had Greek-speaking synagogues. But what you had was an ethnic uh, diversity, but also a divisiveness among Judea- in Judaism among the Jews. And that carried over into the church when the church started. So you had this church full of Hellenistic Jews, and you had a church full of Hebraic Jews. And what we, see, what we saw last week in the first part of chapter 6 was that with these growing pains, as the church multiplied, uh, there were problems that, that came up, that rose. And the first problem was this problem that some of the, the Jewish, Hellenistic Jewish women were being overlooked. The widows. And so they, that problem was brought to the attention of the apostles and they listened to the problem and they appointed seven men to be uh, essentially deacons. Diakonos was a Greek word that they gave them, which means deacons, which means servants, which means table waiters, right? So these seven men, this is, origi- is an actual picture of the seven original men in their boilers. And uh, they uh, waited tables, and they freed up the apostles for their primary calling of the word and of prayer, and these seven men, it says they were Greek speakers, and so they were ministering to the people that were being overlooked, which is really cool and wise. They were full of wisdom and full of the Holy Spirit. One of these men was Stephen, and so Luke does this thing where he goes from macro to micro, you know? It's like 3,000 get saved, and then we focus in on this lame man who was begging at the temple. 5,000 were added, and you focus in on next week, this Ethiopian on the road in the desert. And here, this huge uh, need that existed in the church, seven men were chosen, but the focus on one of them. His name is Stephen. So Acts 6.8 says, Now Stephen A man full of God's grace and power did great wonders and miraculous signs among the people. Opposition arose, however, from members of the synagogue of the freedmen, as it it was called, Jews of Cyrene and Alexandria, as well as the provinces of Cilicia and Asia. These men began to argue with Stephen. They could not stand up against his wisdom or the spirit by whom he spoke. Then they secretly persuaded some men to say, hey, we've heard Stephen speak words of blasphemy against Moses and against God. So they stirred up the people and the elders and the teachers of the law. They seized Stephen and brought him before the Sanhedrin. They produced false witnesses who testified, this fellow never stopped speaking against this holy place and against the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and change the customs Moses handed down to us. All who were sitting in the Sanhedrin looked intently at Stephen, and they saw that his face was like the face of an angel. So the seven deacons were commissioned to wait tables, but pretty early on, they outgrew their job description. And so you see, Stephen was filled with the Spirit and filled with wisdom, but Luke says he was also filled with God's grace and power. And he does signs and wonders. He's not just waiting tables. He is doing miracles. He's the first non-apostle to actually do the miraculous signs and wonders among the people. He was an apologist. He was an evangelist. He was brilliant. And the Hellenistic Jews were arguing with him, but they couldn't stand up to him because he just ran circles around They could not stand against his wisdom, or Luke says, against the spirit by whom he spoke. And so the leaders of the synagogue were trying to hang on to their power with everything that they had. And they felt it slipping away. And much like the, just a few weeks before, the Jewish leaders felt their power slipping away as Jesus stood before them. These guys do the same thing. They hire some people to lie. They start a smear campaign against Stephen. And there are, there are charges of blasphemy, specifically blasphemy against um, Moses and against God and against the temple and against the law, which is basically everything Judaism stood for, Right? They came and said, Stephen is speaking against Moses, and he's speaking against God, and he's speaking against the law and the temple. It would be like if a preacher was preaching in Kentucky about the evils of tobacco and horse racing and gambling and the Kentucky Wildcats, which we all know are evil. But um, sorry, (laughs) if you're from Kentucky, sorry. Um, This was ludicrous. Stephen uh, loved God he worshiped at the temple, he followed the law, and he uh, thought Moses was awesome. And so um, their charges are completely, completely distorted. And it says, Stephen's face glowed like that of an angel. And, you know, like parents, they look at their babies and they say, oh, it's like the face of an angel. But this was, if their babies were actually glowing, it would freak them out a bit, you know? His face was glowing. And for these Jews, they would think immediately of Moses coming down from Mount Sinai with, law, and his face glowed, so much so that they had to put a veil over it because they couldn't look at him. Part of God's humor, I think. He was glowing with the fullness of the Spirit, the literal reflection of the glory of God. So chapter 7, the high priest asked them, are these charges true? And Stephen answers him with the longest speech in the book of Acts, 50 verses. It would take you about nine minutes to read it. So we're not going to do that today. You have all afternoon. It's brilliant. What he does is give a panoramic view of Jewish history. And it's not just history. Stephen is is saying, you missed it at every point. And he starts with Abraham. And God's covenant with Abraham included land, and it included descendants. And Abraham was an old man who had neither. And so Abraham had to walk in faith. He had to believe the promises of God. He had to step in obedience. He lived in this hope and in this faith. In contrast, the Jews wanted to keep everything as it was. They were content with the status quo. They had broken their promises. They lacked obedience. They rejected the faith, and they put all of their hope in their own fleeting power. So then Stephen brings up Joseph, story of Joseph in the Technicolor Dream Co., Right? This is an awesome story of, of grace and wisdom and faith in adopting God's expansive view of life. One of the most famous lines from the, from the story of Joseph is that his brothers come to him and he reveals who he really is at the end of the story. And his brothers, you know, had had sold him into slavery and left him for dead and all of that. Joseph says. What you intended for evil, God actually used for good. And that summed up his worldview about God's sovereignty. Joseph felt the freedom that comes with trusting God. In contrast, the Jews were imprisoned in the mazes of their own law taking things into their own hands. He talks about Moses as kind of a, a prophet and a, a mediator and a rescuer and a deliverer. He was the, the messenger. He was the, the UPS man for the law and for the tabernacle plans. He was a man of deep faith. But the Jews rejected Moses, and they, they broke and bent the law to fit their own purposes and their own agendas. And in so doing, they had rejected God. And then finally, Stephen talks about the temple. He says, God doesn't live in buildings. It's not about the place. The temple was not a precondition of salvation. Jesus talked about that in in John chapter 4 with the Samaritan woman. Everybody was so hung up on where are you allowed to worship and Jesus said well the time is coming when true worshipers will worship in spirit and in truth. The Jews in contrast idolized the temple. They worshiped the temple. It was all about the temple. So Stephen highlights Israel's propensity to miss what God was saying and what God was doing throughout the whole history. Of Israel, And he gets to verse 51, and remember, he started, I don't know if we read this verse anyway, at the beginning of his speech, he goes, brothers, like, building some, some camaraderie. But in verse 51, he says, you stiff-necked people, your hearts and ears are still uncircumcised. You're just like your ancestors. You always resist the Holy Spirit. Was there ever a prophet your ancestors did not persecute? They even killed those who predicted the coming of the righteous one. And now you have betrayed and murdered him. You have received the law that was given through angels, but you have not obeyed it. Stephen talks about the very things that he's accused of. And he tells the Jewish leaders, he says, actually, you're the ones that are being blasphemous. You destroy the temple. You disobeyed the law. You've distorted the words of Moses, and you've murdered the Son of God. You've rejected the true Lord. He, he walks back through the history of Israel to show them, to highlight the fact that they have misread it, that they have misunderstood it, that they have misinterpreted it, that they have misshaped it. They missed Jesus. And Jesus had said the very same things to them, A few, a couple years before, John chapter 5, you search the scriptures because you think that by them you will have eternal life. But the scriptures, Jesus said, point to me. As I was reading through this, I was reminded of uh, Tim Keller's sermon, True and Better. Perhaps you've heard this, but there are parts of the sermon that are directly attached To Stephen's speech, Keller says Jesus is the true and better Abraham who answered the call of God to leave all of the comfortable and familiar and go into the void not knowing whither he went to create a new people of God. Jesus is the true and better Joseph who at the right hand of the king forgives those who betrayed and sold him and uses his new power to save them. Jesus is the true and better Moses who stands in the gap between the people and the Lord who mediates the new covenant. And Jesus is the true and better temple in that he is not limited by a fixed location or continual sacrifices, but by Christ's ultimate sacrifice on the cross. He has brought God's very presence to be with us always. You miss Jesus? That's what it was all about. You missed them. He says, You always resist the Holy Spirit. Despite all of these amazing privileges that they had had, despite the provision, despite God's presence and power on display all the time, there was this continued chronic infidelity. There was this chronic disobedience, this rejection of God's love, this persecution of the prophets, and ultimately the killing of the Messiah. You missed it. And when they heard this, they were furious. And they gnashed their teeth. Very vivid description. But Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, looked up to heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Look, look, he said, I see heaven open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. And at that, they covered their ears and yelling at the top of their voices, they all rushed at him. And they dragged him out of the city and they began to stone him. And meanwhile, the witnesses laid their clothes at the feet of a young man named Saul. Who is going to show up a couple more times in the book of Acts and two-thirds of the New Testament. While they were stoning him, Stephen prayed this, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Then he fell on his knees and cried out, Lord, don't hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he died. I see heaven open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. The Son of Man was a title that Jesus used for himself. And it came from the book of Daniel. And it pointed to this new king who had all authority, who had all rule and reign. So the picture that Stephen saw as he's having rocks thrown at his head was the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. Standing is a posture of being a witness, of being an advocate. And as Stephen is bearing witness to the reality of Jesus, Jesus is bearing witness of the reality of Stephen to his heavenly Father. Jesus... Is advocating on behalf of Stephen. He'd said this, Luke chapter 12, I, I tell you, Jesus said, whoever publicly acknowledges me before others, the Son of Man will acknowledge him before the angels of God. But whoever disowns me before others will be disowned. Before the angels of God. For Stephen to say, I see Jesus at the right hand of God, he was saying, Jesus is God. The long-awaited Messiah who now rules and reigns over all. I see him. And that was all they needed to hear. That put them over the edge, and this mob dragged him out of the city and stoned him. And he says three things as he's dying. First, he says, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. That comes out of Psalm 31, which was actually this short bedtime prayer. Into your hands I commit my spirit, deliver me, Lord, my, my faithful God. But Stephen twisted up a little bit. Instead of saying, my faithful God, he says, into your hands I commit my spirit, Lord Jesus. Even in his dying prayer, he is pronouncing that Jesus is, in fact, God's son. He says, don't hold the sin against him. He is consciously or unconsciously mirroring his Savior, this unjust trial, being led out of the city, being executed, praying for forgiveness to those who are murdered. There's all these, these parallels to Jesus. There's another one that, uh, as I was studying through this, just really hit me upside the head. He was brought before Caiaphas, who was the high priest. But Caiaphas had been the high priest at the trial of Jesus. Jesus. And even before that, as they were trying to plot against Jesus earlier on in the Gospels, Caiaphas is the one that uh, unwittingly prophesied. This is John 11. The chief priests and the Pharisees called a meeting of the Sanhedrin, which was like the, 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 the Supreme Court. What are we accomplishing here? Here is this man performing many signs. They're talking about Jesus. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him. And then the Romans will come and they'll take away both our temple and our nation. They'll take away our power. We don't want that. And then one of them named Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, spoke up. You know nothing at all. You do not realize that it is better for you that one man die for the people than the whole nation perish. He did not say this on his own, but as high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the Jewish nation. And not only for the nation, but concentric circles, also the scattered children of God to bring them together and to make them one. In Jesus' case, one died so that all may be saved. In Stephen's case, his death begin this ripple effect of mission, of Acts 1-8, of being put into motion, the ripple effect of the gospel. And that's the last few verses that we're going to read in chapter 8. On that day, a great persecution broke out against the church at Jerusalem, and all except the apostles were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. Godly men buried Stephen and mourned deeply for him. But Saul began to destroy the church. Going from house to house, he dragged off men and women and put them in prison. It has started. The tipping point. Malcolm Gladwell had that book a few years ago. And he described and defined a tipping point as the moment of critical mass, the threshold, the boiling point. The levels for which the momentum for change becomes unstoppable. A couple of weeks ago, Aaron was reading through Acts 5 with us, talking about Gamaliel saying, hey, if this isn't of God, it's going to just fade away. But if this is of God, you can't stop it. It's an unstoppable force. In the unstoppable force, the tipping point is this persecution." And it scatters the church. And as it scatters the church, the gospel goes to Judea. To Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. There's an escalation of persecution. It started with a warning. Remember that? Peter and John, before the same Sanhedrin, and they said, hey, just shut up. Don't talk about Jesus. And of course they, talking about Jesus. And so then they brought him in. They jailed him. And then they flogged him. And now they kill Steve. In much the same way that Joseph said, what you brothers intended for evil, God is actually using for good. What Satan had hoped would destroy the church, actually, Rose the Jews had a dispara, a scattering. And now the Christians have a scattering. This is the Christian dispara via persecution. And Acts one eight is in motion. So that's the that's the scripture. I want us, as we leave, to think about those concentric circles one more time, starting with you and me. How does this hit you and me? So as I'm uh, as I'm reading through Stephen's life, and in really what we're going to be talking about, where we're going is talking about the persecution of the whole church. We're going to, to spend some time praying for that, but then it's it's like. Starting with, with you and me. So a couple of questions. Would I be willing to die for my faith? Around the world right now, people are dying for their faith. Would I be willing to die for their faith? Would you be willing to die for your faith? And we sit here in the middle of Purdue, like literally. And you know, you've know, you got a couple tests this week. And it's like, the... the Probability of you dying for your faith this week is pretty slim. But that question invites another question. Not only would I be willing to die for my faith, because I can, I can, you know, work through that cognitively, and I, I would hope so. I would hope I would be willing to die for my faith. I would, I would hope that if, it, if, 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 if faced with that with persecution, with death, I would stand up for Jesus. But if I'm not put in that situation, then the second question is, am I willing to live for my faith? And that question hits a little bit closer to home for most of us. It's very, I I don't know, very likely. It is likely that some of you will have to answer that first question literally. Some of you are from places in the world where you could quite literally be facing persecution and possibly death because of your relationship with Jesus. For most of us, that second question hits a little bit closer. Am I willing to live for my faith? Who am I living for? Martin Lloyd-Jones says, the true Lord of your life, the driving narrative, the story you're living out of, is anything that holds such a controlling position in your life or mind that it moves and attracts us so easily that we give our time, our attention, our energy, and our money to it effortlessly. We don't even think about it. What is the controlling narrative of your life and, and my life? Is it the lordship of Jesus or is it something else? Is it self-improvement or is it Christ alignment? <laughs> Unless Jesus is the center of the story, the story is incomplete. That's what Stephen is telling the Jews. You've got the story, but it's incomplete because you miss Jesus. What story are you and I living for what story are we living? Is our story living us restless, leaving us anxious, leaving us empty, leaving us depressed, leaving us lonely, unsatisfied? Jesus completes your story. Luke 9, he said, Jesus said to the crowd, if any of you wants to be my follower, you must Give up your own way. Take up your cross daily and follow me. And Paul said, this is what that looks like. Galatians 2, my old self has been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. So I live in this earthly body by trusting in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. So as that spills over into this week, Paul says in Romans, I'm not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes, first to the Jew and then to the Gentile. So am I willing to live for my faith? Am I willing to live in such a way that aligns with Jesus, if so, then inevitably that's going to bring some conflict in your life and my life. And for some, that, that will mean getting mocked by a roommate. For some, that means getting uh, ostracized by a professor. For some, that means losing friends we've had some people sitting in these chairs that have actually been banished from family because of their faith. Is it worth it? When Jesus becomes center, when Jesus takes up your whole periphery, when his grace and his love for you become the narrative of your life? Absolutely. 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 Two quick things, and then we're going to move to this last part. One is that you have the power and the presence of the Holy Spirit. Leah and I were talking last night Peter, 50 days before Pentecost, denied knowing Jesus three times, denied even knowing Jesus. Then at Pentecost, he's, he's, he's preaching, right? What's the difference? The Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit. It's like you don't have the, the capacity. I don't have the capacity for faith. Faith is a gift from the Holy Spirit. Boldness, the kind of boldness that the early church is praying for. We don't have the capacity for that kind of boldness. Boldness comes from the Holy Spirit. If the Holy Spirit took a vacation for three months, would we know that he was gone? (laughs) To live in the power and the presence of the Holy Spirit. I think that's that's one uh, takeaway. Another one is... um, God has not given us a spirit of fear and timidity, but of power and love and self-discipline. Concentric circles, your own life, your own heart, and then expanding out to this campus, and expanding out to this country, expanding out to this world. As we expand out to this world, this happens to be the international day of prayer for the persecuted church. When we laid out the acts in the summer, had no clue that that was true. But it is. And then Aaron's going to move us into a time of praying for the persecuted church this morning.
1: Started with 12 scared men and now has grown to one-seventh of the world, this faith, this love of Jesus. And it continues to grow and spread even to this day. We have up here on the screen some statistics and some numbers from an organization called Open Doors. Uh, Please check their website. Um, You can see a few more things, but I want to read a verse from 1 Corinthians 12, and it says this. What we have is one body with many parts, each its proper size and in its proper place, and no part is important on its own. The way God designed our bodies is a model for understanding our lives together as a church, every part dependent on every other part, the parts we mention and the parts we don't, the parts we see and the parts we don't. And listen to this. If one part hurts every other part is involved in the hurt and in the healing. If one part flourishes, every other part enters into the exuberance. Their story is our story. Because we are one body, when one part is suffering, we all suffer. When one part is rejoicing, we all join in. But we get the privilege And the opportunity to come and raise their arms, hold their hands as they walk out this very real suffering and intense persecution. 245 million people in 2019 alone don't just face persecution, but face intense persecution. If you want to go to the next slide. It says, on average, that's 11 Christians killed every day for their faith. That's just in the top 50 most persecuted countries in the world. That's not everyone. Their story is our story. And so we join in, and we're going to pray for them today. There's another map that shows... It's color-coded for the most intense persecution in the world. And that's right in this 1040 window where 97% of the world's unreached live and where the most intense persecution is. And so on your seats today, we have cards of the nine most persecuted countries in the world in 2019. And guys, this isn't something that's distant This is something that's very personal. Many of you might know Bailey Brown, who she works back in our sound booth, and she got a phone call this morning. And Bailey works with a team um, that works all over the world. And the team that's in Syria today, there was a man, um, they were at a collection point, and they were providing aid for those who were injured in the war, and their collection point was mortared. And one of their teammates died. And he leaves behind a wife named Luna. And it was his daughter's first birthday today. So this isn't something that's distant, this is something that's here and now. So we join in. We join in their suffering because we know God's kingdom is unstoppable. And we know that God is still on his throne, but we pray, and we come alongside, and we hold up their arms. So in your seats today are cards, and I want you to gather with two, three, four of the people around you, and I want you to pray. Pray for our brothers and sisters. Pray that the gospel keeps spreading pray that God is glorified, because we know that even in death, life still comes. So we pray. So join in. Go ahead. Take a few minutes. Pray for the, the people in the churches on those cards, and then we'll end together in a song.
2: Um, can join in. There are just two things I was thinking about as we've been praying. I want to say yesterday, I spent most of the day uh, raking my leaves. And my neighbor has this beautiful red Japanese maple tree and his leaves were all over my yard. (laughs) But I was just raking them, exerting the effort and the, the mild discomfort of having to rake all of his leaves. Um, I realized that part of me sharing in that was that I got to enjoy the beauty of his tree. also get access to the beauty of that. The other thing, I was is, as we as a staff have been having conversations about churches in these suffering places. There's this, um, this phrase that keeps coming back up. that in these churches that we've been praying for just now in the 1040 window and where persecution is up front, the danger for them is right there. It's physical. It's in their face. But in the West, our danger is falling asleep. as we sing this next song, what, what invitation do you sense from the Lord? What place is the Lord saying, wake up? believe that we would die for our faith, but the invitation right now is that we would live for Jesus.
0: trick circle questions. It's like, what are you living for? Who are you living for? Like right now, right now, can we align with the Lordship of Jesus? And then live that out this week on campus with your friends and your class. To let your light show shine before Amen. that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven, like a city on a hill. And then can we take these cards with us and just commit to praying for these Christians in these countries as we go? Um, Let's not make this a kind of a one-and-done thought, but keep this in front of us throughout this week. Bailey, you wanna throw the picture up? Zao. How you say his name? Zao. Yeah. This is Zao. This is from Syria. This is his family. We pray for his family. Before we pray tonight at 7:30, uh, we'll our regular Sunday prayer time, but we're going to focus really on the persecuted church. And so, even if that's not your normal Sunday routine, think about making that tonight. And uh, uh, fellowship continues over at Joshua House right after this for some, some brunch.
3: Would you pray for us? Today, we give honor and glory unto your name. We exalt you because you are our God and we are your people. Your word said, If we ask, you will give the nations to us as an inheritance. And so we lift up your church before you. We lift up those who are persecuted before you because they also are our inheritance. And as we lift them up before you, God, we pray today that your spirit would comfort them. We pray today, oh God, that you would surround them as with a shield. We pray today, oh God, for those that mourn, that you would comfort, for those that hurt, that you would make your presence ever felt. For those, oh God, who are hurting, that you, oh God, Would make yourself known because your word said that you are forever with us for those of us who are here oh God we pray that you will cause us to remember to stand alongside our brothers in prayer stand alongside our sisters in prayer those who are hurting those who oh God are persecuted. We pray today, O oh God, that your word would be spread to every nation of this world. Because your word says that in the last days, O oh God, in the end, people from every tribe and every tongue and every nation will come and worship before your throne. And we pray today that your word will continue to be spread. And even us here, God, as we are not heavily persecuted We pray today that we remember that we be cognizant of those, our brothers and sisters around the world who are. We pray today, oh God, that your name in the end will be glorified. Your name will be lifted up. Your name, oh God, will be exalted. In Jesus' name, amen.
0: Thank you. Go in peace. Go in grace.